0: Greetings. Whoa, there we go. A little hot. <laughs> uh, how y'all doing? Welcome to Wednesday night, uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship. So um uh, I, I answered, there was just a question given to me. So if you're all listening in, is my son still here? He, actually, I woke up and we left the house at 235 this morning to get him to the airport for by three. <clears throat> yeah, so he's probably close to getting back to Africa by now. Um or or may I don't I don't know how long the flight is they had to go to Chicago and then from Chicago straight to Ethiopia so uh, but yeah well it used to be when I a couple of times of going over to Africa um years ago but uh, and I don't know if it's the country maybe depending on what country you're going to they didn't allow direct flights you had to go to Europe and then from Europe down so it's like the same distance over and then you got to go down um now um, at least all the flights he's been able to take, he's been able to go straight to Ethiopia. So that's what I meant by straight. You know, it's a long flight. Any way you look at it. Um, hi guys. I uh, hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. That's yeah, good to see everybody. Why don't we open up in prayer and I'll tell you what we're going to do tonight? And um, I actually, I'm asking for prayer for my daughter. Um, she is uh, was supposed to originally go home Sunday. She's been ill, too ill to fly. And as of right now, it looks like Friday night, um, so if y'all would please be in prayer for her with us um, to see her. She's gotten, there's two nasty viruses that have been going around. One's a, an intestinal, and one is a upper respito- or respiratory, and she's gotten, she had both of them, and everything associated with them. So, um, yeah, if y'all would be, please be in prayer for her. It's been quite uh, quite a trial for her, and I know she'd appreciate the prayer, so she lives in South Carolina. She's flying into Greenville. Yeah, so she'll be flying into Greenville and that's, that's where she lives. So, but, you know, um missed a whole week of work and everything that she wasn't planning and just, you know, of course, who plans to be ill, right? I plan to be ill this date to this date. We'll get it over with. No, that doesn't happen. Father, we bless you. We lift this night before you and we ask that you, uh, Lead us and guide us in what we're about. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, that we would understand your word better as we have this special evening. and Open up our time of discussion to be able to, to dive into what it is we see and that we hear. And, and, um, and may, may your word be a mirror to our souls. May we not be the same after we've looked into it than we were before. Reflect your light in all that we're about. Father, I, I continue to lift Brenda before you in praying for her healing and her wholeness. Continue to, to pray for Miss Annie and, and we, we, uh, um, all those who are on our hearts and on our souls right now. We lift them before you and pray you touch their lives. Thank you for this evening and this opportunity for us to be together. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so what we're going to do tonight, uh, we've got a one-off, a little bit different. Uh, I thought this would be good to kind of get us back and going, and then I have a, a good suggestion of where we go next um, that I want to throw out there. Um, so tonight I've got a uh, a, a video um, by Michael Heiser um, that's kind of an overview of his work on the subject of demons, and he it's it's um uh it's really good. I've, I've watched it a couple of times. I actually read you know his book on demons, book on angels. Um, and uh, very scriptural, and, and the thing of it is, is I think it will help us to understand and see some things in ways that we'll understand our Bibles better when we read certain subjects, and he, he deals and touches a little bit about the, what our understanding is culturally versus what the biblical understanding is, and we're going to find out that they're not necessarily the same thing. We're going to find out the way the Bible talks about things is, is based on the culture of its time, and and hopefully we get we get an expanded understanding of what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross, because he reversed uh, the the three rebellions. Now, what were the three rebellions? You'll have to watch the video to find that out. The commercial. But um, so it's a it's it's um, about half the time we normally take together. So we'll have plenty of time afterwards to have some conversation about it. where I want to go next. I've been praying about. It. I told you I kind of had some ideas and was going to. Uh, ask y'all to trust me on it there is a book that he's put out it's called i dare you to bore me with the bible and it deals with um, multiple passages that are been hard to interpret or people have interpreted different ways or hard to understand so we'll get a chance to dive into we may not go through the whole thing but i figured doing several weeks of kind of doing the bible study on each passage uh, or, or several of these passages so if you want a gut to get the book ahead of time and you want to study ahead which i always recommend because then you can see how well i did right you know it's like that's not what he said but um uh it's called i dare you I, uh, I dare you i dare you to bore me with the bible or something i dare you not to bore me with the bible um by by michael heiser highly recommend it um and uh we'll we'll uh, we'll make our way through it and i'll probably supplement it as as i usually do with other, other sources and maybe throwing some other verses in there as we go through it. So, does that sound exciting? Is that sounding like fun? A good place to go. So we're sticking with Bible study, but rather than doing just one single book, we're going to look at these verses that, that have been like, why in the world does Zipporah, um, circumcise Moses and then throw it on his feet? Why? What's that all about? Why? What's that whole thing in Corinthians when he talks about people who are baptized? For the dead, what's that about? What, what's Paul talking about there? Where did that come from? Uh, you know, these these are the verses. What's Peter talking about when he's when he's saying you know he went and visited the spirits in prison? What what spirits? What what prison? What Tartarus? What's why is he talking about that? We're going to get into all those verses, and you're going to find out that that the weird verses actually mean something, and they mean something important, and they teach us a lot about what the Bible's trying to teach us. And help us understand our salvation, our relationship with God. So that's where we're going to go, um, and uh, uh, that'll be next. So I highly recommend get, getting that. And so have that book in your Bibles because we'll be it's, we'll be going through those together. All right. Without any further ado, um, uh, where this this video is put out, if you want this, so you can find this on YouTube. Um, it's put out by Lagos uh, Bible Software. Um, and so, and it's, it's uh, we'll see the title of it in a minute. It'll come up. But if you if you want to come back and, and watch it on your own at a different time, we are not recording. Brian, make sure we're not recording. Yeah, we're not recording. We're only streaming um, because um, you know, I, I don't want to record something that's been recorded. I want, you know, if somebody wants access to it, we'll give you access to it. You can go get it. It's public, available to the public on YouTube, but I don't want to put something out on our site that's some, on somebody else's site. So, um, uh, but we are streaming because you can you can see it on YouTube yourself. All right, very good. Uh, we'll watch it and then afterwards we'll have some time to Q and A. Excellent, Brian. Well, we want to shut all the lights off for the first two rows back and the stage lights. The the uh, blue ones as well. Should be volume.
1: When Christians think about demons, they typically think of possession, okay, or the, you know, these narratives in the Gospels where Jesus delivers uh, someone from a demonic possession, you know, someone who's seized by a supernatural power. But there's a lot more to the story and the backstory than that. There's this sort of creeping suspicion or creeping narrative that says, well, we really don't believe in these things. You know, those, those possession accounts in the Gospels, those are really just psychological conditions and, you know, other health problems. And it's like, okay, there are a couple that, you know, could go either way with that. But, you know, Jesus doesn't command a, a, a brain or, you know, abnormality to go into a herd of pigs over the edge and you know, into the sea. You know, it, there are just narratives that don't fit that. When it comes to the spiritual world, we are forced to use the language of our own experience, things we can process, distance, time, space. And the biblical writers are doing it because, guess what? They're using words that they know and their audience knows. So they're taking things from their world, vocabulary, metaphors, and they're using those things to describe the indescribable. What we tend to do in Christian tradition is the white hats are angels, the black hats are demons. Well, the the text of scripture doesn't really conform to that. Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, when the Most High divided up the nations, when he fixed their boundaries and their borders, he fixed their number according to the number of the sons of God. Now, that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls say. It's what the new RSV says, ESV, NLT. The number of modern translations will follow the Dead Sea Scrolls. Other ones don't they'll read Sons of Israel instead of Sons of God. Sons of God is the demonstrably correct reading uh, because of the Dead Sea Scroll material. If you think about the Babel event and say, well, why would God divide up the nations according to these Sons of Israel? That's the traditional reading that a lot of Bibles still have. It doesn't make any sense because Israel didn't exist at the time of Babel. And so people wonder, well, what, what do we do with that? Well, the real answer is that isn't what the original text actually said. And we wouldn't really know any of that had it not been for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Septuagint also matters a lot. What the Septuagint sort of does, because it's Greek, is the translators of the Septuagint looked at all of this vocabulary for both good guys and bad guys in the supernatural world. And they more or less made the decision that we're going to call the good guys angeloi, messengers, angels, and we're going to call the bad guys Daimonion, demons. The early church was weaned, grew up on the Septuagint. And there it's all angels and demons. There are some terms that we should sort of camp on just a little bit. One of those is Elohim. A biblical writer will actually use Elohim of God, the God of the Bible, and lots of lesser beings, okay, the gods of the nations. Psalm eighty-two, the members of of you know God's council, His entourage, the heavenly host. It will use Elohim of the disembodied dead in First Samuel twenty-eight. It will use Elohim of the Shadim in Deuteronomy thirty-two seventeen again, which usually gets translated demons, but really is a territorial entity, but. However we understand that, it's not the God of Israel. It's something lower, but it's still Elohim. And the reason why that's okay for a biblical writer to do is that Elohim is just a term you would use as a label on anything that by nature is a disembodied member of the spiritual world, good or evil. It's just if you're a disembodied you know, entity and your natural estate is the spiritual world now, you're an Elohim. Elohim. an ancient person would build an idol okay stone wood whatever it is and they're not idiots they know that they just built that thing the idea wasn't that this is my deity and then then it just dies there the idea is that i will build this object as a home for a spiritual entity they would do ceremonies on the idol like the opening of the mouth Because opening of the mouth, that means it's alive because it takes in breath and all that kind of stuff. Just like someone who's breathing is alive. Well, they would transfer that thinking to this object. They would perform some ritual with the idea that when we open the mouth, the entity, the spirit entity will come and inhabit the object or attach itself to the object. That's why in ancient texts, when idols were destroyed, people aren't thinking, oh, my God's dead now no they're thinking man when i get home i got to build another one and then apologize for letting that happen to the first house and then do the ritual again and then the deity will come back and reside with me or in this temple or whatever it is so there's a there's a connection there's a direct connection between idols and elohim gods in the ancient world they're not you know separable things in that one is real and the other isn't the whole reason you created an idol was to get this real entity to attach itself to it and be with you so that you can barter with it. This is the essence of polytheism. You placate the gods. You believe that they, you need them on your side to live a good life. Let's go to Deuteronomy 32, 17. The Israelites are accused of not worshiping God, capital G-O-D, but instead worshiping Shadim. And then the next line says Elohim that they had not known. So the Shadim are called Elohim in that verse. Now, in the Septuagint, Shadim gets translated as demons, daimonion. Paul quotes that verse, Deuteronomy thirty-two seventeen 17, and 1 Corinthians 10, 21, and 22, when he warns the Corinthians about not eating meat that had been sacrificed to demons. Now, here's the question. For all of you who want to say, oh, it's just idols or just you know objects of stone or whatever, and they don't have real entities behind them, why would Paul care then? Are you saying that Paul didn't believe that demons were real? I'm sorry, but Paul did. Okay, Paul quotes this passage using Elohim of these other entities that certainly did have idols made for them. In the biblical worldview, these were real entities that mattered because they were hostile and could lead people astray, away from the true God. If you go back and you look at the first rebellion... Genesis 3. Again, the figure that will eventually become known as Satan. The word Satan in Hebrew is not in Genesis 3. The serpent is never actually called Satan in the Hebrew Bible, in the whole Old Testament. This is how it works in the Old Testament. The first rebel gets cast down to the Eretz. That's a Hebrew term for ground or land. It's also a term that can be used of the underworld. Why? Because in Israelite cosmology, the underworld was actually inside the earth. This is the realm that was associated with death. Why? Because you bury people when they die. And the being who's in charge of this, or or, or who's the, the cause of all this, is this figure from Genesis 3 who has been cast down to this place. Instead of being like the Most High or above the stars of God, no, now you're going to be like beneath the feet of mortals, the ones that you sought to lead astray and destroy. So we get the kernel thoughts that actually are systematized in the New Testament. One of the things that comes up a lot is what's going on in the bad place. (laughs) Because you get prohibitions like in Deuteronomy 18 is is a passage that a lot of people are familiar with that forbids certain practices that involve contact with the other side. For instance, Deuteronomy 18 very clearly forbids necromancy. You don't contact the dead, whether the dead is disembodied human dead or spirit beings who are just in the realm of the dead. You don't, you don't do that. There are some logical questions, even from that just one point. Would God really give commands to not do something that you couldn't do? I mean, do we have a command, thou shalt not flap your arms and fly? Well, I'm good with that one. I'll never break that one. Uh, No, the, the, the whole logic of commands is that God commands things that are within the purview of human capability, that they actually would work. There are supernatural intelligences that are not friendly, that would just love to manipulate you and destroy you. And so what God is saying is, look, you don't do these certain things. Because these are rituals or habits or gestures of solicitation to other intelligences that, yeah, that will work. And it's not the point that God is a killjoy. He doesn't want you to know what's going to happen. He doesn't want you to know this particular point of knowledge. The, The whole point of these kinds of prohibitions are, if you sort of get sucked into the spirit world on the dark side or you traverse into it, You don't know what you're getting. It's not your realm. Don't think you know what you're encountering, what you're being told. You you, you don't have any feel for this space over here. When you look at some of these passages, there are interesting phrases. Like, uh, some of these spirits are called knowing ones. Well, what do they know? Well... They know lots of things because they've been around a whole lot longer than you have. They've seen what happens to people, to human civilization. They know what happens in the spiritual world. I mean, their knowledge base is a whole lot bigger than yours. And they can deceive you with that knowledge. Don't listen to them. They're going to give you information. They're going to to give you secret knowledge. But it might just lead to your own destruction. It might lead you to worship them. They'd really like that. Being worshipped, being followed, being obeyed is appealing to supernatural beings in rebellion because it's a way to subtract glory and worship from God, who is their adversary, and also to empower them in such a way that you, who they want disposed of anyway, you make yourself more vulnerable to that. So those are the two sort of fundamental reasons why a supernatural intelligence, again, that is in rebellion already with God, and and that relationship, according to Scripture, is, is, is irreversible. There's nothing in Scripture that suggests that a supernatural being in rebellion can be redeemed. And so the only thing that you can do to sort of get back at the judge who put you in this situation is to harm him, to take glory away from him, to harm the people that he does love. When it comes to the second rebellion, the Genesis 6 episode, I think we need to sort of see, again, in a different way, how this sort of plays into New Testament theology. Is it a coincidence that that is dealt with and eliminated, effectively reversed, if you kill off you know, all the vestiges of this, by Moses, Joshua, and David? You say, well, why would we care about that? Moses, Joshua, and David, yeah, they're famous. We like those guys. What do they all have in common? What they all have in common is they are foreshadowings, prototypes, types of Jesus. I don't think it's a coincidence that you have those three individuals that are responsible for the elimination of at least this one aspect of this rebellion. I mean, just think about Jesus a little bit. He is the prophet like unto Moses. That's certainly true. But he's also superior to Moses and he's superior to the law. This is a familiar thing that plays out in Scripture. The superiority, like in the book of Hebrews, the preeminence of Jesus to the Mosaic system. With Joshua as the warrior, the human warrior, operating in tandem with the captain of the Lord's host, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the leader of God's armies. Well, who leads God's armies at the eschaton? It's Jesus. The, the imagery is quite consistent there. In fact, it's actually blended when it comes to the whole Joshua situation. And then, of course, with David, again, he is the new David. He's the ultimate David. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of all the nations. So you get these passages in the prophets that talk really oddly about someone descending from David, okay, ruling over a kingdom that includes Gentiles. This is in the latter prophets, this vision of the ultimate kingdom of God, and, well, lo and behold, look who we have. There are a lot of these things that we can see, again, the connection points, but we don't want to miss the fact that they actually have an attachment back to an origin point of supernatural evil that the Messiah is expected to deal with in reverse. One of the obvious items that comes up when I talk about the Deuteronomy 32 worldview is what scholars typically refer to as cosmic geography. It creates a theology of when Yahweh then turns around right after Babel and calls Abraham and promises him a land. That sets up really the rest of the Old Testament, frankly the rest of the Bible, because you have then Israel, God's people, the descendants of Abraham, occupying this land, you have that play out very obviously in the New Testament in Pauline vocabulary. Now, Paul does use the word demons occasionally, but most of the time he talks about the powers of darkness. It's with terms like principalities, powers, rulers, thrones, dominions, authorities, and and what they have in common is their terms of geographical dominion. And so Paul is getting his theology from this Old Testament stuff. And they're different than demons, but again, they have a common enemy, they're, they're evil, they're all, you know, part of the panoply of the powers of darkness. But the whole notion of attachment to specific regions and places is what's going on here. So you get these stories, Naaman the leper. Why does Naaman ask for dirt? It's because he knows that Yahweh is attached to this place. He's going to go back home to Syria. He's going to go back home and do his job, but he needs... Geography. He needs dirt on which to sacrifice and worship the true God. In the New Testament, Paul, to the Corinthians who are bickering among themselves, he says, will you stop taking your disagreements to you know, these courts of law and having you know, somebody arbitrate between you? Don't you people know that you're going to judge angels? In Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, Jesus himself says, to the one that overcomes, I will put him over the nations. Well, who's over the nations now? It's the gods in rebellion from Deuteronomy 32. They are going to be displaced and replaced in the new Eden, the new earth, which is you know the, the, the final state, by believers. In other words, the new children of God replace the old children of God who are in rebellion. We are going to judge them. You'll actually get passages in Isaiah, terms for these critters that live in the bad places that are anti-Eden. You say, well, why pick on those animals? You know, I love animals. Well, animals who live in the desert, what do they do? They live off the dead. They eat rotting flesh. They are by definition unclean for that reason because their association is with what isn't Eden, what God didn't want for his people. And so all of that is colored by what happens in Eden to destroy Eden, death comes into the world. In fact, in the Septuagint, you'll actually get references to ass humans, you know, it's just weird language. And you say, well, what's up with that? The point isn't that Hey, back in the day, in biblical days, there were like ass humans. You know, there were donkeys. No, okay. The point of it is not literalism. The point of it is abhorrent mixture, freakishness. It's anti-Eden. It is chaos set against order. This is why the vocabulary is used to convey to readers, you don't want to be in a place like this. This is the place where all of God's goodness The things that he wants to give humans, the orderly life, the habitable space that he wants for humans, the Edenic conditions are all in chaos. It's an inversion and a perversion of the way things ought to be and the way God wants them to be. And so that becomes a powerful way of messaging that idea. A lot of this vocabulary and language and the way supernatural rebellion is just described generally, and broadly speaking, chaos metaphors, a lot of it is traceable and derivative from Babylon. Babylon was a bad place because this is where the earthly attempt to kickstart Eden, this is where it died. Babylon was the one who conquered Judah took the last two tribes and, and specifically the Davidic tribe you know, to whom that the promise of, of kingship was given and destroyed it all, destroyed the temple took the people back to Babylon and this is the period when, when many scholars uh, both you know, secular and, and believing scholars believe that a lot of work was done to put the Old Testament into final form and what they do is they seed a lot of the content with Babylonish imagery to communicate where we are now is not where we're supposed to be. We are on the enemy's turf. This is the place of chaos. It's being turned into something it was never meant to be and that God doesn't want it to be. When it comes to the world of the powers of darkness, there are certain things that are just on the table. There's death. Death is a big one. There is disorder or chaos. Those things are 180 degrees removed from the world God created for the human family that he wanted. At the very beginning, they are anti-Eden. Now things accrue to that. There will be agents of death. There will be agents of disorder, these supernatural beings. Their activity is going to get described through either vocabulary or symbol or metaphor. Leviathan was a very familiar symbol in the ancient world, not just in Israel and Canaan, but just broadly. This great dragon of the sea as being a metaphor for chaos. The dragon lives in the sea. The sea is a place that was feared. Why? Because you can't live in it. If you try to go live in the water, you're going to die. Okay. <laughs> it's threatening. It's unpredictable. It can be calm one minute, and the next minute it's going to take your life. The things that live in it are foreign to you because you live on the land. You're used to seeing the creatures there, but when you're out on a boat for a long period of time, you're going to see things that you've never seen before, and you don't really know how to process them. and the writers are using things that are familiar unfavorably <laughs> okay, to describe spiritual threats to a human being again it's a very simple strategy and when you really think about it it's very effective so if you wanted to know you know who or what is on the opposing team. Okay, what's the roster? <laughs> you have things like death. You have destruction. You have wastelands. You have wilderness and desert. You have the creatures that live in these places that consume death, that are responsible for death, that if you go there, it would threaten you. Even after battle scenes, we'll figure into this places that are very clearly under God's judgment. Why? Because there's lots of dead people there. And the way those particular things are talked about in many cases are linked to Babylon. Why? Because Babylon is the chief enemy of the people of God, not only in the Old Testament, but people have a memory of that. And so they will use Babylon in the New Testament to testify to earthly threats. Again, linking these ideas to talk about human agents of chaos that oppose God and oppose God's people, and also supernatural agents that oppose God and oppose God's people. For the biblical person, these two worlds function symbiotically, and the same set of tools could be used to describe either and both. Well, when you talk about the powers of darkness, you have to devote some attention to Satan. (laughs) Let's talk about Satan. Most people, when they think of Satan, they will think of Genesis 3, or they'll think of Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, what scholars call the prologue of the book of Job. So we have a meeting, a divine council meeting. The sons of God are assembled, and then... In English Bibles, Satan, capital S shows up. And God says, Hey, you know, like where have you been? You know, what are you doing? And he said, I've been running to and fro throughout the whole earth and so on and so forth. And God says, Have you considered my servant Job? Boy, he's awesome, you know? And he talks Job up. And then Satan says, Yeah, you know, that's because he has a great life. If you took away everything that he had, he would curse you to your face. I mean, there's a confrontation there. And that launches us into what happens to Job. It raises certain questions. Well, why is Satan there? Like, is he still working for God? Is he on the payroll? Like, what's going on here? And those are legitimate questions that we should talk about. But if you go down to Genesis 3, we get the familiar serpent in Eden story. And we don't get, even in English Bibles, we don't get the word Satan in Genesis 3, and that's because the Hebrew term for Satan is Satan, it doesn't show up in Genesis 3. It's never used. In fact, you never get the term Satan applied to the serpent, Nachash, that's the Hebrew term for serpent in Genesis 3. You never get those two terms married to each other in the Old Testament, speaking of Eden. The Satan figure is in Job 1 and 2 really isn't the devil. Hebrew does not attach the definite article, that's the word the, in front of a proper personal name and neither does English so I'm not the Mike I wouldn't talk about myself as the Mike. Every time the word Satan occurs it has the definite article, so it's satan, the Satan That tells you it's not a proper personal name. It's not a specific entity. Are we going to go with what the biblical text has or what our tradition tells us? So what we have in Job 1 and 2 is we have a member of the spiritual world, in this case a, you know, sort of a functioning member of a board meeting. He's not evil and sinister. He's actually doing his job. Satan as a noun means adversary. That's true. But it could also mean something like challenger or, or or someone who looks around for people who are obeying or disobeying God and then reports on them. The whole point of these metaphorical descriptions is to remind us that God doesn't miss anything. It's all in the memory bank. It's all there. Nothing is overlooked. We're It sort of transitions from I'm doing my job to challenging or becoming adversarial in relation to God is when he questions God's assessment of Job. So he's questioning God's omniscience of the situation. He's also questioning God's integrity. Is God telling us the truth about Job? God says to the Satan, okay, I'll let you do anything to Job that you want to do other than kill him. Because we have to keep him alive so that his integrity will become known. And I'm going to let you do whatever you want because I don't want you coming back here and saying, oh yeah, Job would have folded if you would let me do this. No, do whatever you want. And we'll see who's right. This isn't the devil. So the question is, well, why does this term Satan get applied to the serpent of Genesis 3? Well, just think about it. In the Old Testament... This term is never applied to the enemy. As time goes on, in the intertestamental period, it occurred to someone, you know? You know that serpent figure back there? He really was hostile to God and and to humanity. He's God's adversary. He stood and opposed God. Let's use the word Satan to describe that dude. And by the time you get to the New Testament, this is four or 500 years later, it has become on its own a proper noun. So you get a figure who's named Satan. So you have capital S Satan running around doing stuff, and the New Testament associates that figure with the serpent of Genesis 3. Now, if you actually did Bible study, and you look for all the places where angel or demon or anything, any language like that occurs with the word third or three, you're never going to find a passage that teaches that a third of the angels defected before the fall in the entire Bible. There are literally zero instances in the Bible that actually teach this point. You will find it in Revelation 12, where we have a war in heaven that erupts, Well, guess what? If we read Revelation 12, which is always a good suggestion, if you're going to do theology from a a passage, you might want to read it. If you actually read the passage, the war in heaven there is a response to the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. That happened a long time after the fall of Genesis 3. So there is literally no passage in the Bible that teaches a third of the angels rebelled with Satan, before the fall. It doesn't exist. And so if we really think about who this being called Satan was, he is an intelligent, divine being. Since he is free, but he's also not God. In other words, he's not perfect. There is the possibility, the potentiality, Of autonomy, seeking autonomy. And we see that reflected in passages like Isaiah 14, which I think, and again, I'm far from being alone here. I think Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Genesis 3, they have uh, the same sort of divine rebellion backstory in play. And and really, it's just a question of who puts it forth more directly uh, among those three passages. But you have one particular being who wants to be the highest authority, wants autonomy, wants to be in the place of God, and makes that choice and suffers the consequences for it. As as far as when, well, you know, I, I would answer that sort of, and I'm not trying to be clever here, I would answer that this way, that as soon as he decided that this is what I want and decided to act upon it and decided to reverse God's decision to create humans by getting them to fall, presuming that they would be judged and just dispensed with. As soon as he reaches that point, then he is in rebellion. So if we read Genesis 3, you know, that's about the best you can do in conjunction with God's decision to create humanity and put Adam and Eve in the garden and understanding This is what God is going to do now. We have a human family, just like we have you guys. We have a human family. I'm going to come to earth. I'm going to give them this wonderful place. And we're going to coexist with them and help them and be, again, one big happy family. You have one being that says, don't want to do that. I'm offended by that. Humans are a little bit lower than the Elohim. That's what Psalm 8 actually says that humanity is created a little bit lower than Elohim. And so we have one of these beings that doesn't want to submit to God's authority and says, we're better, I'm better than these beings are, and I'm not going to serve them. So I think all those things are factors into the the what happened and the why. Why? From the time of Augustine forward, we have demythologized, we have stripped away, we have denied that the events of Genesis six, one through four are supernatural. We explain away the Sons of God episode with with the daughters of men. That wasn't the case, you know, for centuries, you know, since it was written, on through the intertestamental period, there's a an individual, Julius Africanus, you know, who Prior to Augustine was the first one to sort of reject the supernatural worldview, but then Augustine did, and there are reasons why he did. He had an axe grind, I think, with uh, some of the, the material in Judaism and in the, in the Manichees, which was the Christian sect that he joined after his conversion, that revered the Book of Enoch, and the Book of Enoch made a big deal out of this episode. And so when they had that parting of the ways, you know, Augustine is just not mindful of the need for the passage and frankly just doesn't want to hear anything about it. And so the rest of the church, because of his stature, essentially follows suit. And so ever since we've had views of Genesis 6 that make the supernatural context of it go away. So we miss number two. And number three is we know all about the story of Babel, but we never really find Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9. Because prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls, it would read that the nations were divided up according to the number of the sons of Israel. And the few people that asked, well, how does that make sense because there was no Israel, don't really have an answer. And so it tends to be largely ignored until we realize, again, through the Dead Sea Scrolls, that it really says sons of God there, and that takes us into this divine something going on here. The Septuagint says angels of God, so it follows the Dead Sea Scrolls reading. So the, the natural question arises, well, what, what's the hierarchy? You know, are, Is there a hierarchy? Are they on the same team? You know, what, What's going on here? Because... They're all Elohim, they're all the same kind of being, but that doesn't mean that they don't have different powers and different degrees of power or different statuses. The original rebel is sort of viewed as having the highest status. And personally, I think the reason is because that is the one who brought death into God's world and basically does the most damage to God's plan and God's people, because everyone is now going to die. That is the thing that disrupted everything. He gains, if I could use the word preeminence, in the dark hierarchy for that reason. He has done the most damage, and so he is rightly perceived as the worst of the bunch. You have one member of the Divine Council who, to quote Isaiah 14, wants to be like the Most High, wants to be above the stars of God. So you have one individual who wants to be the boss. And the problem was the hunger, the thirst for autonomy, for superiority, to be in control. And that is at the heart, really, of of sin. It's self-determination and rejecting the notion that anyone, even God, should tell me how to live my life. That is the heart of the way the Old Testament and really the Bible presents sin and its problem. I think one of the better questions that I often get is, do these divine rebels, are they still members of God's council? Uh, because they don't, like, go away. They're not obliterated and destroyed. And I think at this point we need to, to think about a couple of terms here. One is divine council, and the other one is the broader term heavenly host. Okay, if we didn't have rebellion, those two terms would be absolutely overlapping. They'd be absolutely synonymous But the fact that we do have rebellion, yes, they're still a member of the heavenly host because they're still a member of the spiritual world. That's different than asking and saying, are they members of the divine council? Because the divine council, by definition, in the divine council scenes are those who assist God in governance. These guys aren't assisting God. They're in opposition. So I don't think that divine rebels are still part of the divine council. They're not on God's payroll. They're not showing up for work on Monday because they don't have a job anymore. Okay, So there's a distance there, but nevertheless, they are still members of this thing we broadly call the spiritual world. This is a world that doesn't conform to spatial understanding and distance and latitude and longitude. You know, you have this distance and this adversarial relationship, and yet they still occupy the same space that is the spiritual world. I do think that there is a, a you know, a separation, again, between them. I mean, you get indications of these things in Scripture, which which I I sort of take more along the lines of, defining role relationships and limiting, you know, authority and ability. For instance, I don't think it's a, it's a mistake that when Jesus sends out disciples initially, you know, he, he, he starts his ministry, he starts preaching about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is here, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then he sends out disciples It's interesting that he sends out 70 or 72, depending on whether you're using the Septuagint or the traditional Hebrew text, but it's a reference to the nations that were disinherited because that's their number. Up until this point, this being, this entity, Satan, has owned everyone and everything. But I'm here to tell you that if you are a member of the kingdom of God, this being, Satan, has no claim on you at all. It's as though the prosecutor has been thrown out of court. God doesn't need to hear what you've done. He doesn't need to hear why you deserve death. He doesn't need to hear that death is your destiny. If you embrace me as Messiah and you join the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, problem solved. He has no claim on you at all. And so this, my ministry, my message is the beginning of him losing ownership of the world. This is where it begins. What spiritual warfare is, is the growth of the kingdom of God, the Great Commission, and the diminishing of the other kingdom. And the way that's accomplished is telling truth. You speak truth to lies. You know, at the end of the day, when we talk about the powers of darkness, and let's be honest, you know, they sort of get most of the stage time when we think about the supernatural world. The one thing, though, that I hope you take away is structurally the way Scripture presents this to us in the the instance of three rebellions, and more importantly, how Jesus and what he does on the cross is specifically aimed at curing and reversing all three. The stuff we've talked about here, these are not accidents of Scripture. These are not things that you more or less have to, you know, make up, these correlations. The correlations are there. They are in the text. The language in the New Testament connects to the language of the Old Testament. This is intentional, it's strategic, it's intelligent. Okay, and so if you have one takeaway, it's to think about what Jesus did in response to not only the problem of our you know, mortality, eternal life, but just how wonderfully and how, sort of, in an all encompassing way, what Jesus does in the New Testament and how it's talked about covers the gamut of all of these forces of supernatural darkness and what they're about. Not one of them gets missed and nothing gets unaddressed.
0: the curse of all three perfect okay so um, I'm going to open this up for a time of conversation for those that came in later um, uh, this was a video by Michael Heiser he is for those that don't know who he, he was he passed away earlier this year actually so um Incredible uh, theologian, Bible scholar, um, you know, and one of his goals is to take a good scholarship that academics discuss and know all the time and get it from the academy into the pulpit, into um, you know, everyday believers to help them understand their Bibles. And uh, one of the things he says, he's not afraid for people to understand what's actually in their Bible. And there has been, if you know much about the history of the study of these things, there's been much in the academy and the church, if you will, that have purposely separated themselves and not having conversations. And his goal has been saying, no, that's wrong. We want to have that conversation. There's some other amazing scholars out there who are doing the same thing uh, and trying to make that happen. And that's actually kind of one of my goals, but kind of from the reverse Um, is taking what these guys are talking about and bringing it here. Let's have these conversations. Let's look at it. How does this make a difference to our walk with God? Because I think these make a huge amount of difference. So playing a videotape like this, you know, there might be some things we've never heard before or some perspectives. Or there may be some things, okay, what in the world does that have to do with my actual walk with the Lord? How does this inform me about these things? So that's what I want to open up with. Um, I've got like a bazillion notes here. So my first question in in going through this is, what hit you that was something that's like, well, I never understood that or never heard it that way, or you've got a question, a specific question about something that he said? So I'm going to open it up there, Stephen. Okay, so... The question is, if God knows everything, why does he allow the devil to tempt Job to discover where his faith is? All right, so if you followed what Heiser was trying to say, did you follow the fact that Heiser was trying to say that the character called Satan in the Job passage is not actually the devil? Did everybody follow that? So, okay, so to understand the scholarship of what he's saying here, and here's where we here's where it breaks down for us. Um, the word Satan is a Hebrew word. It's just a Hebrew word. It's not a name. It's not in any form or fashion. Um, and we know that because it's always used um, uh, with some type of an article. And Hebrew works the same way as English. We don't go around, around calling each other, putting definite articles in front of our names. We don't say the Sally. The Tim. Okay, that's not how we talk. That's improper. But when you see the word Satan used in Hebrew, it has a definite article in front of it. The Satan. And in fact, there are actually passages that refer to God as the Satan. Uh, Why? Because there are passages where he is challenging. He's the one who's the challenger. He's the one. So what it's doing, it's describing what the being is doing as opposed to who they are. Unfortunately, because we're reading it in the English, most of our English Bibles take, uh, um, take this, these two words, get rid of the the, and make it a name. Um, but what you have is you have a person, and because this person is not the only passage, there are other passages where this is done. This is in the prophets as well. I believe it's Zechariah. You see the same thing come up in Zechariah. What this person is doing as this being is doing um, is in this in the Job passage is uh, and and what Heiser and this is the important takeaway that I think Heiser's making from this and this is what if you're if you're reading this story back when it was written and you're looking at what this being is doing what this being is doing is literally the one who's recording everything that's going on in Earth. It's the one that's, it's giving that metaphor, that picture, that there is nothing that happens that God doesn't know about, God doesn't see. It's it's where we get to when when Paul says we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give account for what we have done in our lives, believers and unbelievers. And this is is the concept that's in that. Um, And so... Um, uh, what now what's going on with with uh, uh, the accuser in this in this um, uh, passage and what Heiser was talking about is in this passage is the accuser is, um, you know, God is saying uh, God's the one actually brings Job up. Look at my servant Job. There isn't anyone like him. Well, the accuser is playing, it's a, it's a courtroom scene is what's going on. This is a divine council scene. This is one of those few times when we get a picture into the divine council. We've talked about the divine, how many are not familiar with the divine council? I don't want to go into it if we've, okay. So, you're not familiar with it. So, there's, there are pictures, like when we were studying Daniel, You remember how we were studying Daniel and we get the picture of the, the, um, the principality, the prince of Persia, and the spiritual entity. In Daniel chapter 10, there's a spiritual, the divine being that comes to show, shows up to Daniel to tell him, "Hey, Dan, you've been fasting for 21 days. God heard you the day that it began. I've been sent to speak to you, but I have not been able to get here because I was opposed at the border. Remember, it says at the border. When I get when I came to Persia, the prince of Persia stopped me from coming in here." But your prince, Michael, who we know is an archangel, came to your assistance uh, or came to my assistance in opposing him so that I could come here. And I've got to be quick in what I tell you because I've got to go back to this battle. And it doesn't give us a lot of detail about what's going on, but it does tell us there are things going on in the spiritual world that are paralleling things going on in the physical world. There are spiritual battles that are going on that are paralleling. And and the question becomes, paralleling what are uh, issues going on in the physical. The question becomes, which is driving which? Um, Well, one of those scenes we see, it's in Kings, it's in Chronicles. The prophet Micaiah talks to Ahab and tells Ahab that, um, uh, that he actually saw the divine counsel and God had said, okay, guys, how are we going to handle Ahab? And he decrees Ahab's going to die, and the divine council comes up with the way it's going to happen. Same thing happens in Daniel. How many remember in Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar's dream? And the watcher shows up, and the watcher says, we have decreed, a watcher is another title for a member of the divine council. says, we have decreed, this is what's going to happen. Remember, the watcher watcher means one who is awake, and he appears to Daniel when he's asleep. You get this whole Hebrew irony going on. The one who is awake appearing to one who is asleep to tell the one that you are asleep. And why are you asleep? Because your pride is causing you not to see what God has done. And as a result, you're going to have a mind like an animal, because to ignore God is to have a mind like an animal. And so he ends up with a mind like an animal for seven years. This is This is all a decree of a watcher. This is very similar to what's going on here in Job. You have a divine council meeting. You have these individuals. God's bringing up an individual. He's talking divine counsel. One steps forward as an adversary and a challenger to what's God saying, and it leads into this trial that Job goes through. Now, so the question becomes why. So the question is actually, um, is the direct answer to your question is, God doesn't use the devil to do that. Okay. What he's do, but what he is doing is he is allowing Job to go through tremendous trials. Why is he allowing Job to go through tremendous trials? Well, um, uh, quite frankly, the story itself doesn't actually give the why. The story never actually says why. But what the story does do is. Are things that the New Testament authors bring up over and over again. We see it in Peter. We see it in James. Think it not strange the fiery trials you're going through, for the testing of your faith is of more value to you than gold. Um, these these types of passages come up all throughout. That that concept that if we I'm going to back up. I don't want to get too too far on this. There are three books of the Bible called wisdom literature. There's more, sometimes there's more, but three main books called wisdom literature. You have Proverbs, you have Job, you have Ecclesiastes. Proverbs gives you this, this set of propositions that are godly propositions and godly truths that says, generally speaking, if you live your life according to these righteous principles, then you will see flourishing in your life. The problem is, There are those who live by those principles and don't necessarily or always see flourishing in your life. Why? Now we have the book of Job that says, Here's one who was living according to these godly principles and yet saw all of this in his life. Why? What happened? Well, we don't know the full reason why, but we do know that he stood righteous in spite of it. And in the end... The result of it was he had a greater understanding and a deeper appreciation and actually was glad he went through it. About who God was and what his relationship with God was. There are certain things that can only be seen after the cross. And then we have another book of the Bible. This is the the, um, um, uh, Ecclesiastes. Which talks about here are all these people who are not living by godly principles, and it looks like in the end they they uh, uh, end up not uh, they end up appearing to flourish. That doesn't seem right either. And the point of that book is if justice is only what we see here uh, under the sun, then there is no justice. Ultimate justice is that God is eternal, and nothing uh, will. Goes without being paid for. So even when it looks like somebody's getting away with it, they don't. You see, the, 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 these are this, are this wisdom literature is, is is powerful literature dealing with all of the big questions of life, and these overlap. And so when you're looking in the story, it's real easy to say to, to go to well, you know, why would God allow uh, the devil to do this to, to Job? Well, remember. It's not till we get to the New Testament. Um, the, the entire Hebrew Bible never actually makes the connection between the, um, the term Satan and the serpent. That's not, that, that, that connection is not made until you get to the New Testament. It's actually, it actually is made during intertestamental times. It comes up in intertestam- comes up in Jewish um, writings um, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Which I think is absolutely fascinating. Um it's it's a it's a developed theology. So did that I don't know if that answered your question, Stephen. Did that make everyone more confused or did that answer your question? Everybody good? All right. And I think um this actually this question came up to me recently in a whole other context. And the question is, is um why would God allow uh why did God create create people who um uh why would he create so many people who would ultimately not choose him and end up in destruction like wow it's a good question but we i think we look at these things the wrong way what is it that god wanted to begin with what god longs for more than anything else is a family this is why, remember remember, he said at the end, what is spiritual warfare? Jesus literally reverses. What's the three rebellions? I'm going to ask that in a minute. Jesus re- reverses the three rebellions. And what does it tell us in John 1, verse 12? Anybody know? Somebody can look it up real fast if you want. You up your phones. What is it? Yep. No, 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 John, the Gospel of John, chapter one, verse twelve. The right to become what? by how? by receiving him? see what is, he's, what does he what did he desire from the beginning? Family. What does Jesus reverse separation from family? What does he desire more than anything else family? He created us and so we I, I find it awfully fascinating. we blame God for human failings and human uh human choices, um when everything God has done has been to create family. Everything He has done is to be create flourishing and family. Now now there's something that's a very, very powerful piece to that. And that is is you don't have to choose it. And it's not family until you do. And why do we blame God that he has given everything? You know, what do we call a government that takes away our choices? Yeah, we call it tyranny. We call governments tyranny that take away our choices and we call God evil for giving it to us. That's what we do. You see, one of the things that we find, what strikes me about the question is what the question really highlights more than anything else is it highlights just how much in rebellion to God we actually are. When we can see ourselves as better than him. When we can sit here and make a moral judgment against him. What it really highlights is our own selfishness. Which is what he he just said. He said, if we want to talk about what is the essence of of Satan, the essence of the devil, the serpent, and the essence of these rebellious divine beings, did did anybody catch what he said was the essence of them? Their evil. Specifically, he was talking about Satan when he was describing it. His goal of self-determination. His goal of self-determination. You see, God, you know, if we were created for God's purpose, we weren't created to, to determine our own destiny. We were created to submit to the destiny he has for us. And that's what ultimately brings flourishing. So these divine, these evil divine beings, what is their goal then? Their own self-gain. And how? what is their goal then with us? Yeah, two things. To deceive us. Go ahead. Yeah, to deceive us, to distract us, deceive us, which ultimately leads to our destruction. Now, if, 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 uh, um, as a believer, we can be deceived. Hmm. It's possible for a believer to be deceived. It's possible, uh, it's possible to be deluded. This was another question that came up. Uh, fairly recently, um, and, and uh, well, I won't, go, I won't go into that, I'll stop there. Any other questions, Tim? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, um, if you study theology, okay, if you're studying the scriptures, uh, and, you're, um, and you're wanting to interpret them, you're wanting to understand them, you're wanting to see what is the story of the Bible, how do these things connect? And there's, there, there's something in this, there, there's a, when you read the Bible, there are certain things that are very clear. Anyone can open the Bible, open up the Gospels, read the Gospels, and understand uh, uh, that Jesus died for your sins and you can have a relationship with him. But there's a lot of things in the Scriptures that are not clear. okay So there's something called the perspicuity of the Scripture, the clarity of the Scripture, any person can hear the gospel stories and and uh, get a basic level of understanding that leads to salvation. All right, it was a fascinating story I just listened to this morning, or was it yesterday morning? Um, you know, it was, it was a guy that walks into a church that uh, at, um, uh, where John MacArthur was preaching, and he li- John MacArthur, he, the guy was was about to die of AIDS, and he was scared to death. And um, some, and he was like, where do I go to get an answer about this fear for death? And somebody told him to go to this church. So he goes into this church, and John MacArthur starts off the service by reading Psalm 8, I think it was. I think it was Psalm 8. No, it wasn't Psalm 8. I wrote it down, but I don't remember what Psalm he was reading. He's read this psalm. He just starts it off. And immediately this guy was convicted just from hearing that psalm. Just from hearing that psalm, he was convicted. And he said, he didn't remember anything that was preached. In fact, the whole time he's sitting there, when's this got to be done talking? i got to go talk to somebody about what I heard in the psalm. The scripture has the ability to be clear and speak to us. Yet, there are many things in the scriptures that are unclear. How do they connect? How do they interconnect? Heiser said this in his, in, in, um, uh, t- uh, tonight in the deal. He said, the Old Testament and the New Testament are very intelligently interwoven. There is full on at least 30% of your New Testament you cannot understand if you do not know your Old Testament. The book of Revelation has an average of two quotes per verse, or not quotes, allusions or references per verse to the Old Testament. That's an average. There's at least 800 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation alone and so that takes real study and scholarship to discern and to understand now if if you follow the study of theology over time uh, uh as um, those who have studied these things it's um has uh, um it it takes a lot of learning to know these things and then this is the whole point of teaching so that you have those who have learned this stuff who can try to 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 um, masticate it, if you will, chew it in such a way, meditate on it in a way, and to try to, to, to explain it to those who haven't spent that, uh, or haven't had the opportunity that level or the ability to study it at that level. Well, um, when I'm referring to the academy, I'm referring to the, the seminaries, the universities, the institutions where the scholars have come up over the centuries who have studied these things, And they 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 will come up with all kinds of views on how to interpret certain passages, or even follow certain uh, philosophical or interpretive frameworks. Um, And one of the things that has happened is in in certain circles is that well we don't really want this we don't really want to tell people this because they won't have the ability to understand what we're saying. And there's some levels of that. There are other levels where, I mean, they're just, they're just scholars who are writing and talking to other scholars, because this is the way scholarship, this is work with any type of scholarship. You know, if you take scientists, scientists don't write their papers for the lay people. They write their papers for other scientists. Same thing happens with theologians. They're not researching and writing for, for non-theologians. They're dealing with these, they're doing deep dives on issues for other theologians, and they're having these debates. And these things become what's called peer reviewed and they're they're kept among their peers. And a lot of these things that get discovered, get understood, get talked about don't ever make it The the other thing that happens, let me say this as well, and this happened starting of going a little bit of history here. It's much more detailed than this, but this is kind of highlighted. Late eighteen hundreds, there's a school of thought that rose up called higher criticism, and higher criticism really said well, we're, we're smarter than the Bible, and so we're now going to discern whether the Bible's true from the outside in rather than from the inside out. Um, this is oversimplifying it, but that's this kind of thing that we're going to apply our knowledge and discern whether what's true and what's not in the Bible because we're so smart. Um, as this came up, rather than evangelical or believing scholars opposing that, they became kind of a separation between this. The Bible school movement really started coming up, and a lot of the people who were trained in Bible schools were not, then not trained at the theological levels, and were not opposing these things. Um, now, that's not 100%. There's been scholars, but um, but gradually over the 20th century, more and more evangelical scholars started to rise up and begin to oppose some of these things that were in the academy. And so we've come into a time now when we have amazing scholars. Who are, um, uh, you know, who do like, Michael Heiser's way what he says. He says, I'm very boring as a scholar. What I do is I read what other scholars write and I make all the connections that nobody else is making and then I tell everybody about them. Um, uh, Craig Keener is, the, uh, you know, off the charts, amazing New Testament scholar and, um, and, uh, who's also at that level trying to bring what's popular. You got, you got a lot of them, um, out there who are doing this, uh, now. Um, so that's what I'm referring to. There, there is actually a split where um, those, in the, those in the academy, in the universities, as doing this professionally are saying, we're not interested in what's going on in the church. Not interested at all. We don't care. And there are those in the church who said, we have our doctrines. They're preset. These are our doctrines. That's it. Don't mess with them. And so... A lot of what's going on in the church is teaching doctrines over and over. A lot of what's going on in the academy is staying away from the church. And we're, and we're, and so our doctrines inform us more than, than interpreting scripture. Our doctrines inform scripture rather than scripture informing our doctrines. And it's been a passion of mine for the last 20 years to have my doctrine informed by scripture, not the other way around. Now there are certain fundamental things, like I said, there's a certain base level fundamental things that, that um, that make Orthodox Christianity what it is. It's that they're fundamental creeds that are accepted basically across all Orthodox Christianity. What we're talking about is those tiers and layers and levels that are added to that and above that, which tend to divide into different um, um, denominational camps and that type of thing. Well, well, you know, can we know these things? I think we can. Does that help answer your question? Yeah. Uh, Probably way more than I needed to say. Yeah, that was the short version. So, um, but I've been, you know, reading and studying it for a long time. So it's, how do I boil it down to it? Yes. Any other questions? Hmm. So comments. And what did you think about what he had to say? Okay Hmm. okay, well, I appreciate you saying it that's what we that's what yeah, that's why we're having these so uh any anybody else have similar problems? Things he was saying that was like I'm not following where he's going or anything. Okay, what was one thing that was new? Yeah, understanding that. Sure, sure. Yeah, you, know, you never heard it that way before. It's in. A, it's actually a fair amount of a, a, a commentaries have it. Um, I've obviously read it and very familiar with it and heard it for many years. Um, it's out there, but like you said, it's not what's taught popularly um, because when you open it up and just read the way it's interpreted, it makes it. It, it makes it appear a certain way, and so that's the way it's taught. Um, but it's not a, actually a very good translation at all to translate it that way. It's not translating the Hebrew. That's a fact. It's not translating the Hebrew the way it's in most of our English Bibles. And that's a fact. Um, so, uh, um, you know, uh, I don't think you're wrong to, to, uh, here's, let me, I'll give you an example. I think this will really help. I'm going to give you an example of a verse, and I've done this before, and some of you may be familiar with this. This would be really, really helpful. This is what happens when we're reading our Bible. How many are familiar with the passage in Matthew? And I'm paraphrasing it. It goes something like this. It goes, the eye is the lamp to the body. And if the eye is bright, then the, 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 uh, the whole body is bright. The, uh, but if the eye is dark, then great is the darkness and, uh, within. How many are familiar with that uh, passage? Okay. Now, I'm setting you up. I'm telling you ahead of time that I'm setting you up. I'm setting you up. I'm telling you ahead of time. What does it mean? Now, some of you may have heard me say this and, and know what it means. But it, So I'm asking those. If you, if you have, don't, don't spoil it for everyone else. What does that passage mean? You can see the spirit message? Okay. Anybody else? Wanna take a shot? Do what? Do what? We've talked about it before, so you need to hold on. <laughs> I know what he said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's spoiling it. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. Anybody else want to take a shot? Most of the time, I've heard sermons on this that are all about, well, what you look at. You've got to be very careful about what you look at and what you see. Because the eye is the gateway. And there are scriptures that talk about this. Right? You know, be careful about what you put your eyes. And I've heard all kinds of sermons that, that talk about, you know, how you pay attention to what you see and, and what you're looking at and where you're seeing and, 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 and how that affects you inside, right? It's, a, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I see that. It's like, I'm gonna take a little shot at it. <laughs> Our spiritual eyes. Then you're bright inside. If you see what the Spirit allows you to see, then there's light coming in. If you're not allowing the Spirit to, to lead you, and guys, kind of sort of, sort of what Carmen was saying here. Or, or, okay, so, that's a good discussion. It's a biblical discussion. The, uh, the other one, what you put in front of your eyes, a good discussion. It's a biblical discussion. Has, neither has anything to do with the passage in Matthew. Nothing. Zero. Zilch. M- Marco knows this because we talked about this. The passage has to do with, y'all see you later, have a good evening. The passage has to do with, um, if you look what's, what's to, uh, uh, two sections in front of it, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where rust and moth destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither rust nor moth destroy. And then it goes into this passage about the eyes, and then it says, uh, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You have to pick one. And then it says, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. God will take care of it. And you got this one little verse in the middle, and like, we take that out of its context and give all these teachings that have nothing to do with what it's saying. It's a Hebrew idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom, and the idiom is this. person who has bright eyes is a giving person. A person who has dark eyes is stingy. If you have if you are a giving person that demonstrates a great a good heart that's laying up treasures in heaven that's not serving money but god it's one long teaching all put together but you see how we can read what the passage says from our perspective and our way and completely miss it and we're just reading the plain words on the page how could you you know i remember one one person told me one time well i mean if you have the holy spirit all you need is the bible and the holy spirit so I brought this up to him and I asked him, I said, why didn't the Holy Spirit tell you that? I wasn't trying to be mean. I'm just trying to say that's why you need good scholarship. That's why it needs to be not just what we think it is because I'm looking at the words on the page. That's why I have to go and get, dig down deeper to understand these things. And what? Uh, and I'm going to boil down what Heiser was kind of saying in for you. So there are three rebellions, and each one of the rebellion has a human and a spiritual component. The first rebellion was led by the serpent. His rebellion. When did he rebel? People people think that that what he was one of the things he was getting to is people think that the devil rebelled before the fall, and he took a third of the angels with him, and that's nowhere in the Bible anywhere. Period. This is the, the 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 only thing that we can actually conclude from the Bible is that the moment the serpent is deceiving Adam and Eve, or deceiving Eve, and uh, uh, in order to get to Adam, um, is that is the moment of his rebellion right then and there. That is the moment of his rebellion. We have nothing else in the Bible that tells us anything else. And he was the first and the foremost to do the most havoc by bringing death by separating. So you have the first rebellion, then you had a second rebellion. The second rebellion is Genesis 6. When members of the divine council, sons of God, literally left their place of authority in heaven, came down to earth, and fathered a race on earth of the Nephilim. You've quoted the passage from the Nephilim. And the problem, the reason why most of us don't know this or haven't heard this or don't believe it is because from the Four hundreds, when Augustine started reading this, he had a beef with the Manichees, and the Manichees were pulling like the Book of Enoch, and he didn't want anything to do with the Book of Enoch, so he despiritualized, even though for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, this is how this passage was understood, he all of a sudden despiritualized the passage, and because he is such an influential person in the church, more people have listened to what he had to say about it than what was actually taught about it for hundreds of years before then. And actually opposes what's out in the New Testament. Because Peter teaches about it. Jude teaches about it right in the New Testament. And so you had the second rebellion that was what? They bring corruption. They corrupt mankind. There are four or five fundamental levels of corruption. They corrupt. They, they teach women how to seduce men. They teach men how to do warfare. They teach w- witchcraft. And they teach... Um, um, uh, idolatry that these are the things that come out of the corruption of the sons of God then you get the third rebellion and the third rebellion is fascinating and the most of us don't miss the third rebellion um uh, and so those spirits who actually led that rebellion actually were put into jail this is peter this is jude he talks about, they talk about it in the new testament it's in tartarus peter says um but they created a race on earth that was an ungodly race. It was an ungodly race. And, and three people opposed that race. Moses, Joshua, and David. Moses, Joshua, and David, who are all a type of Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 18, there will be a prophet like unto me, Moses. Joshua, who was the captain of the host of the army of God, who actually comes to the captain of the host of the army of God. And what does he do? When he goes into the promised land, he is to go in and absolutely destroy certain places. Do you know why he's to absolutely destroy certain places? Because the 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 offspring of the Nephilim are there. That spiritual rebellion, that's where they are. See, guys? That's where they are. You see, we get into all these... these the, see, now... You all of a sudden aren't, you're not concerned about what's this, is this, genocide? I've heard so many people say, well, the Bible has genocide in it. No, it's the absolute destruction of the perversion of what evil spirits did to humanity. When you see it and you understand it and you know it, it gives it a whole different context. A whole different context. The third person, David. David Confronted Goliath, and it was David and David's mighty men that killed the last five Nephilim known known of in the scripture. And he's the king. And that's the third, that's the, uh, that's the second rebellion. The third rebellion was Tower of Babel. Now what's fascinating about this one is this is in reverse. Humans rebelled, who were then followed by a spiritual rebellion. But we don't see it, we don't get it, because we don't connect what our Bibles connect. Unless you connect Deuteronomy with Genesis, you're not going to miss, you're going to miss it. But, but Moses tells us plainly in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, When God divided the earth according to the sons of God, when did he divide the earth? The Tower of Babel at the third rebellion. You read Psalm 82, you discover that these divine sons of God rebelled against God and led man astray. I've always wondered, see, one of the things, before I knew this, before I learned this, one of the things I always wondered was how was it in in the living memory of Noah, the floods happened, there are people who know Noah, they're still on. How in the world do you have idolatry? How in the world do you have idolatry after the flood happened in living memory? People are alive who went through it. How do you have idolatry? How is that possible? How does God judge the world that much and you have idolatry? Yeah, so I understand it directly because the they, humans rebelled by not uh, um, by not uh, spreading over the earth, and God divorces Himself from humanity, places the sons of God over them, and now you get a spiritual rebellion, who lead people to them instead of Him. Why? Because the way they get power, the way they get the way uh, is to do two things: they deceive you. And when they deceive you, you follow them, they get power. That's what he said. That's how they get power, by deceiving you. By getting you to follow them, they, they are opposed to their enemy. And it's this that um, uh, there were clearly a spiritual battle going on right out of Egypt. Well, that makes sense. What just happened? These people were just ripped. Go back and read the the passage in Exodus. It doesn't say that God defeated the Egyptians. It said God defeated Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and the gods of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? It's a spiritual war. And so we come down to um, the, the present. What did Jesus do? He literally reverses all three. He literally reverses all three. Thank you. By the way, Michelle made these. These are persimmon bread. Michelle made these. Please take one. These are all they got, like, overgrown with persimmons in their yard. And so she, she made these and brought them up. And thank you. Uh, and I'm gonna, I'll be finishing up here because I know everybody needs to get. Um, so uh, Jesus reverses all three of these. He, re, he for Raising from the dead, he reverses the curse of death by giving us. By taking us, humanity, sinful humanity, humanity that is so sinful we are by nature an enemy of God and giving us a righteous na- nature, He reverses the corruption. And then what happens on Pentecost? Oh my goodness, how did, how did the nations get split? By languages. What happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out and you have people from all these nations gathered in one place at one time, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is poured out? And what are they speaking? One language to which they are all hearing it, a supernatural language, a spiritual language. He's reversed all three. He has reversed all three. And so spiritual warfare is what? These same entities... See, the reason why Heiser did what he did is because most of us just want to think about angels and demons in the way, like, where's my guardian angel, and does that person have a demon? you say, demons are lower-level beings when you actually look at it. The worst ones are the intelligent evil over geographical regions who are deceiving entire nations. And spiritual warfare is when we share the truth when we stand in the truth and the love of the gospel, and you speak that into someone's life, and now all of a sudden they are translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Now we have done damage to the kingdom of darkness. Now, do we? Does that mean that those other things aren't aren't uh, those other ways of seeing things aren't real and aren't true? They are, but they are. There is much more. There is a bigger story. And because we don't understand the bigger story, we're not active in it. There's something called the diffusion of responsibility. We have a whole church of people. Why do I need to share the gospel? There's a whole bunch of other people here who can do it. But when you see the whole story of the Bible, you understand the powers, principalities, thrones, this, all this language Paul's using, then where's he getting it? He's getting it from the Shadim. He's getting it from the three rebellions. He's getting it from um, uh, uh, all of these passages, the stuff we just studied in Daniel. And he's telling us that's what we're fighting. That's our fight. Our fight is not flesh and blood. Our fight is spiritual. And the way we fight is with spiritual weapons. The fact that we are saved, the fact that we have been made righteous, the fact that we have a a, a sword of truth, the fact that we have a shield of faith, the fact uh, um, that we have the the gospel of peace to carry. The fact that we've got the, the word of God. You see, all of that weapons, what does it do? It deals with all three of the rebellions. It deals with all three of the rebellions. All right. That's kind of a summary of what he was saying, but in a much more academic way. So, very good. Well, I was hoping this would be a treat. Um, I figured it would probably open up some conversation and seeing some things a little bit different way. Um, but next week we'll uh, we'll be diving into the scriptures like we normally do and breaking stuff apart. Let's close in prayer, and um, and if y'all will help me uh, put the chairs back and make sure you greet one another. Father, we bless you. We uh, we lift this evening before you, and I pray that we would have a glimpse, a grasp of the greatness of what uh, you accomplished through your Son on the cross. The power, the kingdom that you brought to earth, the kingdom to which you have brought us into. That we would see ourselves as the means of spiritual warfare. The agents in the way, in the same that there are agents of darkness, you have called us as agents of light, as ambassadors of your grace. And that by the, the, the spreading of the word, the means of grace go out to, to, to change lives. To diminish the kingdom of darkness and increase the kingdom of God. Father, give us a vision, give us a, a, a mission, give us a heart for this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your patience. If you please, if you'll help me with the chairs, and also make sure you greet one another.
2: Hmm. Hi, I'm good.